0: Hello, Biblos Network. It is so good for you to join us today. My name is Joseph Urshan. I am standing in this week in this intro for Brother Nathaniel Urshan as he is out of town. But today we have a special episode for you. We have the Bishop Larry Booker. And if you've never heard him before, you are in for something very, very special. And for those that have heard, you already know that you are going to be very, very blessed. And so if you like the video today, go ahead and leave a like. Uh, Leave a comment, give us your thoughts, give us your feedback. Um, We definitely want you to subscribe, become a part of what God is doing here at the Biblos Network, and go ahead and hit that notification bell so you can stay on top of whenever we release a new episode. You don't want to miss what's going on here. And so, God bless, let's get into the video. The title, What a Difference a Line Can Make... I, I, I give a paragraph to that in the book, but ultimately, what was happening is a friend of mine and I were going from San Ysidro to Tijuana, and we were walking through, we were not driving through, and we were um, walking on the red tiled walkway that goes from the USA to Mexico, and once we crossed the border, we came into an area. There were, there are, Taco Bells, in Tijuana. There are, pay. There's pavement. There's street lights. There's cars. There's everything, that you have in the United States, but it's a totally different world, and. Um, the food's different. Of course, the language is different. Everything is different. So while we were walking, you come to a six-foot line in the tile that's the demarcation line for two nations. And I stopped in the middle of the line, and I looked back to the United States, and I looked forward into Mexico. And I looked at my friend, and I said, what a difference the line could make. Just one line. So that got lodged in my brain and once and sometimes certain some things get lodged in your brain, you tend to um, start, you just start looking at things differently. And so one thing led to another and that's how I came up with the title of, of the book. The initial thought for the book has to go back almost 35 years ago. I, uh, I was in California. I hadn't been here very long. I was in the Bay Area and I was actually holding my second revival. And as uh, was is my manner and many people's manner, I was uh, once again reading my way through the Bible. And I was in the pastor's office, and I was about to begin reading the book of Numbers. And as I began, I—I I sincerely felt the presence of the Lord come in. And um, He has He has a host of ways of speaking to us, but He spoke emphatically to my spirit that. He had something very special for me this time in my journey through the Book of Numbers. And so I I always I try to pay close attention, but I paid very close attention. And I made it all the way through the Book of Numbers, and nothing leapt out to me that was earth-shaking or, or rattling, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I... I supposed that it was the Lord and and then it was either the next service or the service after that. It was very, very, very soon while I was preaching a thought leapt to my mind um, that comprises the title of the uh, second chapter, When God Overthrows. And a person can get in trouble in many, 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 many ways. Um, but when, if, if they have so ordered the affairs of their life that God has determined, I'm fixing to overthrow you, then they've really got bad, bad trouble. There is no worse problem. And, and that, alas, was the fate of Israel when they refused to go to Kadesh Barnea and uh, or to take the challenge at Kadesh Barnea and so their curse was you were you were spying in the land for 40 days so for 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness and um, there was a line that God wanted them to cross it was a huge line and because they refused to cross that that turned them into a nation of wanderers instead of a nation of purpose so um, that began to germinate in my heart. So as is the case many times in life, it's here a little and there a little. It's a line here and a line there. And then in God's time, He, he brings to culmination the thoughts that He's been dropping in the hearts Here a little, there a little. Here a line, there a line. Until finally one day, for lack of a better uh, explanation, he basically gets all the dominoes set up, and you don't even realize they're set up, and and then one statement, thought, word is spoken, something, and a domino is pushed, and the and the click 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 click, and it just starts running down the line, and so um, the day that it all clicked. For me, I was actually pastoring my second church in uh, Arroyo Grande, California, and um, and he gave me um, the message. I preached it at a conference, and then through the years, the message just got broke down finer and finer to various areas, and um, and then I taught those areas in the, uh, the church that we're pastoring now in Rialto. And after we went through and taught them, then after that I decided to compile it and to make it into a book. And a large part of our acknowledgements are all of the people involved that helped me through this process of getting it done. You know, the um, the poet Robert Frost um uh, wrote a uh, a poem called Mending Wall, and um, it's it's a pretty tricky poem, but be that as it may, one of the statements made in the poem is basically to this effect, before someone tears down a wall, they need to ask basically why it was built. Now he, he alludes to that train of thought, and there was a British politician that, that uh, made the same kind of a reference years before. So of course just because a boundary is a boundary doesn't make it sacrosanct. Uh, It's what the boundary does. It's what the line does. Who put it there? Why was it put there? And um, we are in a generation and in a society and in a world that is becoming uh, for lack of a better term, filled with uh, rebellion against any kind of, of lines or authority, and it's question everything and trust nothing and trust nobody and, and on and on and on. And uh, And yet you can't, you can't do anything without boundaries and lines, if thoughts given to it. Uh, to those who love the sports world, try playing a real game of football without goal lines, 10-yard lines, etc. Um, you will have absolute mayhem, and the referees will mean nothing, it's, 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 or, or tennis, or anything else. There's a reason for lines, and not all lines are certainly heaven and hell issues. We know that. But, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the things of the Spirit, when it comes to the things of God's Word, why did he take the time to put it there? Are some things of greater importance than others? I think that's rather obvious, just like in life, but everything is there for a purpose, and to disregard lines of clear demarcation given by, be it Moses, and I know that's the dispensation of the law, but the law was a good schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So we're not dealing with a fool when we're dealing with Moses or the prophets. These were God's people and they were excellent schoolmasters. And so when they bring us to Christ. The lines that the apostles give us. And David said it best, thy lines have fallen out to me in pleasant places. When, when God's lines are embraced, they are enriching, they endue with power, they strengthen. One of the uh, portions of the book, I talk about a missionary to Pakistan. She's gone on to be with the Lord, and it was Sister Foster, Frances Foster, and um, I met her 30 years ago in a church in California, and, and way before the book was written, and it was another one of those dominoes that God was setting up. But in the course of our discussion, and I do talk about her in the book, but um, she was a missionary in Pakistan for years and yet she had never, she believed the Acts 2.38 message, she believed in the oneness of God, but she had never been uh, taught the world she came out of, uh, the religious world, they had never taught lines of demarcation by way of holiness standards, be it, be it men and women's hair, uh, modest dress any things of those nature, uh, acceptable, non-acceptable jewelry. Ex- she, she said she was foreign to all of that. And she went to a conference many years um, before I'd met her, um, actually in Tulsa. And there she met a, a family that was a rich heritage of, of um, righteousness and, and godly teaching. And they befriended her, and she lived in their home for a short time. She asked millions of questions, and they gave her answers and took her to the Scriptures. And she saw it, and she embraced it, and she went back to Pakistan and taught it. And when she told me that, I said, Sister Foster, I've been looking for somebody like you all my life. I said, what was... The difference between your ministry, your work, before you embraced the message of holiness in this context, before you embraced the lines shown you that the apostles gave, uh, the types and shadows that were given in the law and the prophets, etc. What was the difference after? And her answer was classic and it was, and it was beautiful and it was from her heart and you could tell it was not only well thought out, it was very well lived out. She said, the first and greatest thing that my embracing of holiness living teachings was the protection that I received for my mind and my spirit. She said prior to that it was as if I lived in constant temptation. Um, she said I almost felt like a pincushion, I, 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 almost no defense for uh, attacks, be it thoughts, uh, just almost every way. She said I fought. I, I, I didn't succumb to, to violence or anything like that. And uh, she was a great human being, great child of God. Um, But she said, when I saw that and I embraced it, she said, I can't tell you how much was lifted off of my shoulders by way of day-to-day grind, and the work became easier. It's almost as if I was shielded now. I was protected now, and I wasn't just fighting for my life. I was able to become more productive. And more valuable, and more energized, and she said the people that I taught grew. It it hindered nothing; it helped everything. So, um, her that was just a moment, and so it it added, if I if I I guess to the ever <clears throat> building quiver of thoughts and arrows that I didn't even realize would would eventually play itself out into, into the teaching and then into the book. So I think those in our generation, there is such an onslaught everywhere and every line that's ever been drawn by God is being challenged just like every line of every parent draws is challenged. Every line, um, good or bad, that a government draws is challenged. It's a challenging age. It's a uh, fist shaking in anybody's face that would durst to um, draw a line. And again, not all lines are good. Not all lines are right. This is why we need to know what that line is there for, what that precept is there for, what that Why are those scriptures there? What is their purpose? And, um, and this we do know God's word is not to be tampered with. You don't add to it. You don't take away, except at very grave peril. In my reading through the book of Numbers. And when I was very attentive, trying to get whatever it is, when it did all start coming in on me, that that was one of those main things. One doesn't have to uh, be in the kingdom very long or be in a church very large or to travel very much from church to church, portions of the country, etc., to find out that there's a lot of people. They very much deeply, dearly love God Um, but there are everything from personal mannerisms to local phraseologies, colloquialisms, to outlooks, to basic understandings, perhaps misunderstandings. But, but people are different. Uh, you can't have a family without having differences in, in, uh, in human beings. I have three sons, and, uh, and in many ways they're so much alike, and in many ways they're so very, very different. So that happens in a, in a family with the same mother and same father for the same amount of decades. So it's inevitable that that's going to take place Across the board in churches, people uh, they 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 draw closer to certain friends than others. Sometimes that's seasonal, etc. But to be or get uptight over that, I think is um, God's much God's much bigger than that. He doesn't get uptight over that any more than He got uptight over the twelve tribes of Israel and they were distinctive. The fact that Judah was such a distinctive tribe is very obvious in Scripture. Um, and of course, God is leading up to David, and then He's leading away from David to Jesus Christ. But that's that would be what the tribe of Judah would produce, and they were referred to as the um, praise, of course that's his name, what it means. Then you have Levi, who was the um, Levitical priesthood tribe. And it goes on and on and on until uh, you have a host of things by way of, uh, uh, Simeon could be pretty rough around the edges. He would be scattered among Israel because of that. Um, Asher seems to be by, based on the prophecies given both by Jacob and then even by Moses. You see distinctives um, that Asher seemed to be a quite a business venture tribe. Dan. Uh, based on their actions and based on prophecies and based on the book of revelation you can't even find them uh, took on characteristics that that were not good Um, it seems that they never repented from the uh, golden calf that that jeroboam placed up there so there are there are different tribes and um, and then when you have uh, powerful ministries down through the decades that leave such large footprints and uh, and great impressions on so many. Um, I venture to say, if I may, that between Andrew and Nathaniel Urshan, they they left they left uh, quite a tribe there. And then you have people like David Gray. You have people like like. Paul Price that come to my mind. And I could think of figures from different parts of the country. They loomed so large and they left cast such large shadows and they they affected so many in so many ways that, that um, to say they at least formed or left strong impressions that could be categorized as kind of spiritual tribes. I think it's very, very, very fair to say that. And to say that the twelve tribes um, were all God's people. They were God's people, and and um, God had a plan for them as a collective people. Absolutely, He had a plan for them. Individual tribes, I think, that can be seen. That He had plans for every single person is obvious. That He has a plan for everybody's life. So. Personally, I draw a lot of comfort from 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 the uh, tribal concept that it's not the end of the world; it's just the way it is. Again, in in um, the Book of Numbers, when um, when uh, the Balak, the king of Moab, brought forth the dancing girls with the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and israel fell to lusting and uh, and and the plague began Um, they did not fall prey to balaam's prophecies he he would prophesy under the inspiration of god and as such all he could do was bless israel he was true to his form in that he wasn't happy with that role and so, by the counsel of Balaam, he, he, he figured out how God would kill them. And so, Balak employed his devices of the uh, lewd women and the succulent meats uh, cooked. And here had been these manna-eating people all these years and they, they, they fell and they went. And so, God, the plague began. And the plague would have continued. Um, And here we see, and it's in the book, but a parting of the ways, Levi and Simeon together, they destroyed, I think it was the descendants of Hamor when, when his son, uh, I think it was Shechem, um, violated Dinah. And so It was Simeon and Levi that, on the third day after the circumcision, they together went after and and slew those men. It was a cruel, heartless, horrible uh, dealing. Um, And it's to try to get in somebody's head that lived these thousands of years ago is pretty tough. But if you just base it on the motivation, it seems like Levi's motivation was for true righteousness. Simeon said it was a little debatable. At any rate, whatever they were thinking, there was a parting of the ways when Balak did what he did through Balaam's counsel because Zimri, who was a prince of Simeon, takes a Moabite, here's a a little colloquialism, Moabite hussy, he stands while the the elders are in the tabernacle throwing dust in the air and bewailing. In my mind's eye, I see him with a smirk on his face. He takes her to the tent. There's no remorse. There's no uh, embarrassment. There's nothing but effrontery. It's a in your face against the slime. And the plague was raging. He could care less. And while Moses and others were throwing dust in the air, has a priest, a Levite, he gets a spear, and his righteous indignation is so, he's in a rage. Here's death, destruction, a plague. Here's the effing of, of, of Zimri, his Moabite girlfriend. <clears throat> and the scripture lets us know with one fell swoop, they are both slain. The second that judgment was made by Phinehas, God stopped the plague. So that lets you know the unbelievable role that man played in the lives of people. That it took a while for the word to get out. What stopped it? And uh, and it was also at that point. At that point, that God sealed the priesthood in Levi. It was not apparently a settled issue with God. But from that point, he promised it belongs to you, Levi. So when you see a glory-less nation of slaves in Egypt, um, the only direction they had is what Pharaoh told them to do and when the glory of God visited them with the plagues and then leading him out and the pillar of fire by night and the glory cloud by day, all of that was brought by the instrumentality of a man by the name of Moses. And so without Moses, you're not going to have that glory. God has the glory, but he chooses to use human instrumentality to, uh, to see it delivered, somebody's going to pray. Somebody's going to touch God. Somebody's going to, to get in alignment with God. And, and, and through that alignment and that obedience, <coughs> excuse me, create a channel through which God can move. And the more people that catch Moses' vision, purpose, the more people are blessed. And, and so you go down through scripture, you have a Northern kingdom of Israel that is, um, backslides immediately upon their secession. Jeroboam, uh, it's a golden calf before you know it. It's a false priesthood. Well, the glory of God is gone. The days of the glory falling in Solomon's temple. The Israelites are going to be raised up generation after generation, knowing nothing about it. He's afraid for them to even go to to Jerusalem and see that temple. And he doesn't want them to be involved with the glory of God, because glory has a draw. So he's he creates a false priesthood, false gods, everything else that he can just keep them basically in his control. The, the man he couldn't control was Elijah. The man that wouldn't be controlled was Elijah. It is interesting to note that that God sent two of His most powerful prophets by way of miracle-working power, etc., to a backslidden nation. But that's where He sent them, and so Elijah goes, and then his counterpart, Elisha, the miracles they perform, and the glory. That is, that is brought. The day that the fire fell on the sacrifice at Mount Carmel and, and Israel falls on their face and they still don't have their vocabulary quite right. They're not saying the Lord is God. They're saying the Lord is the God. They, they don't quite have it down yet, but they're headed at least at that moment in the right direction. So they would have known none of that without Elijah. and. And then history is replete with examples. And uh, and 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 forgive me here. I'm not. I'm, I promise you, I'm not smoothing you. But but when I think of of uh, the ministry of your great grandfather, and and the glory that the venue that traveled with him, it's not small. And and others that we have seen, verbal bean. Uh, there was a, there was an aura about him. I'm, I'm so sorry. And I feel so cheated that I have to relate that secondhand and, uh, and I can't relate it from firsthand experience. It is, it is from people that I know that knew him very well. And it's of course the, uh, the tapes that I have absorbed, there was just something, uh, uh, about him. And obviously he was a praying man. He was a devoted man. He was a God fearing man. He was a man of the word of God and the glory of God honored him, honored him tremendously. And there's just a host of other examples that can be given. And there are just, well, bottom line back, (laughs) I can get sidetracked very easy on the minutia, but three main venues and this here is encapsulates everything that I've just said. And that is that there's three main venues that God uses in his church. He uses a host of things, uh, the, uh, but is the word of God, the spirit of God and the man of God. Those are the three main things. If we were to say, well, of the three, What has the greatest, most powerful effect on the church is it the Word of God or the Spirit of God or the man of God. Our natural inclination usually lends itself to the Word of God. And I so wish that was true. I wish it was true. I, and, but I've, by way of experience, I think I can easily prove it's not the Word of God. It's not even the Spirit of God. the strongest, most immediate effect on any local congregation is the man of God. That's proven by, look at all of our one God, Jesus' name. Look at all of our one God, Jesus' name, apostolic churches. We all have the same Bibles. Now there may be some have a, using a different version, but let's just say they all have the same Bibles at least started out with the same spirit. Why all the vast differences? It's based on the man. It's the man. And that's readily seen is replace the man. Let him die. Someone else come in. It may go on and become more glorious. It may be the opposite. It may be, for lack of better terms, horrible. And then it becomes fabulous. Same Bible, same God, but a different man. So for whatever reason, God has chosen to use men to closely align himself with men, identify himself with men, ministries, women. and, And if they will be in alignment with him, with his spirit, with his word, with his will, then he doesn't mind issuing forth his glory, but he wants a venue and he's good enough in his mercy. He works, he works in every chance he can, every, you give him half a chance, he'll do stuff, but he's most comfortable with working with people in spite of them, not in spite of them, but because of them. He will work in spite of all of us sometimes but he enjoys working with people because of them and the more they're in alignment the more his glory can be made manifest. I think it's a inescapable law. It's, 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 it's evidenced every day so yeah. One of the amazing things it, and it was another uh, domino that God was setting up uh, for me. I was, I was actually sitting in a bank and I was reading um, out of a Smithsonian magazine. And um, they were talking about barbed wire in the Smithsonian magazine. And the point they were making is that without barbed wire the West and meaning from the West it, you know, there was a day when Indiana was the West mm-hmm. and, um, and then it was Nebraska. Well, now California is considered the West and I guess Arizona, the desert's the West. <clears throat> but all of that would would anywhere back East, you had a lot of rocks and you had a lot of trees. <clears throat> but the further West you went and the climate changed, you were running out of wood, Okay. And um, ultimately, bottom line, you could not have civilization without fencing. It was impossible. Because here's the farmer. He's going to raise hogs. He has to have a field. He has to raise, has to have a garden. Um, He has cattle. He has horses, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's no fences. How are you going to keep the hogs out of the, out of the garden? How are you going to keep, uh, the wild animals off the hogs? How are you going to keep the cattle where they belong and the horses on the reins where they belong and not wandering off? And so you get out west and there is no trees. You're not going to build a wood fence. Where, where are you going to find one? If you build a rock fence and you have a herd of cattle of over a hundred, and you don't have lush grass. So you have to spread them out further and further and further so they can find enough forage to even survive. So that means your fence to keep them in has to get larger and larger and larger. And how many rocks are you going to find to build? So it was impossible. And uh, the west was not going to be one. You could have. You could have the fastest draws in the West and you could have all the Pat Garrett sheriffs you could get your hands on, but you're not going to have civilization. You have to have fences to keep things in order. So when, um, and it's in the book, but the the name John Warner Gates, um, barbed wire, there's so many types of barbed wire. Uh, Oftentimes if you go into a restaurant that has got a Western flavor to it, et cetera, et cetera. There will be on the wall a large plaque and they'll have six, seven, eight, ten different strands of old barbed wire. There were a lot of makers, when once they come up with the, with the concept. And um, there was many, many names for them. And I have several of the names there in the, in, in the book. And I actually have several of those plaques that I bought through the years of the various barbed wires. Um, But uh, Glidden, a man named Glidden invented barbed wire and then in 19, uh, I think it was 95 or 96, my family and I, we went back east and we went to Washington, D.C. and we went to the um, Smithsonian. And they had on display the Magna Carta that um, had just been given to them um, by Ross Perot. He paid, I want to say, five, $25 million, something like that. And he walked up the steps and handed it to him at the Library of Congress, actually. And so there was that, other things to see, the original Declaration of Independence. And then over here they had um, the patent made uh, for glidden wire. And, And I thought, why that? But they talked about it. Without that, there would be no states in the West. You wouldn't even have California as a state. There would be no civilization. They had to have that barbed wire. So actually, the chapter of the book is the fence that won the West. And it's quite a it's a, it's a humorous story how Gates became a multimillionaire, built the city of Port Arthur. He was a 22-year-old salesman for barbed wire. And, and nobody wanted to buy his wire because they had these big brawny steers and he had this little old thin wire. And they said, you ain't going to keep those steers in with that. So the bottom line, he, he got an idea, uh, for, forgive me readers, <laughs> listeners, while he was sitting in a bar. And he, So he strung up the strands of wire, and he herded in a bunch of Longhorn cattle, and the city came out to watch this crazy loon, and he hired some guy, I don't know who he was, probably drunk, to run in the midst of the Longhorn steers with a flaming torch. Well, they're panicking. They're, they're going nuts. But they don't leave the barbed wire fence. Because they get scraped, and and then he stands up and he says, "It's stronger." Oh, I wish I had this down. It's stronger than steel. Cheaper than dirt. Something like that. It's in the book, and uh, and he became rich, and that's why. That's why Glidden. That's why his barbed wire won the West, and the and the stats are in there, how they sold it and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, it's a classic case in point. Without lines, you have chaos. You're not gonna talk a pig into staying out of your garden. You're not going to talk a wolf out of uh, eating your sheep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, God knew what he was doing, but he gave us lines and precepts and and commandments, statutes, judgments. They were not to infringe on the liberty of his people. It was to make them a great people. What nation have have these statutes, you know, such as he gave them? What nation had them? What nation had that power? What nation had those blessings? What nation? And they're still what they received back then is still affecting the world today, whether the world likes it or not. It's huge, and uh, and so. Christianity has been taking a beating in Europe and in America because it keeps lowering the bar. And and, and even people that study church growth now know it's, 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 it's a common deal. The churches that are growing are the churches that are saying, no, here's lines, here's precepts. We're going to abide by this. And the ones that are growing are the ones that people say, I want that, I want that for my family. I want some sense for my family. I want something where, I want some structure. This mayhem has gone on far enough. And so religious mayhem is just that. And so uh, if we just do it God's way, his glory will be there and his blessings will be there. Modern technology, if I can put it I will use Dr. Nathaniel Wilson's little analogy here and, and if I muff this uh, interview Brother Wilson and he can fix it. <laughs> but I heard him one time talking about modern technology and another phrase I heard a friend of mine make is, is there is a technological tsunami that is hitting us. And um, a, a good friend of mine was just telling me the other day that this is back. 30-some years ago, 35 years ago, old brother, Cavanis, elder, elder, Cavanis, Robert, uh, dude Cavanis' father, he told him, he said, basically, the monster your generation is going to fight is going to be the technological monster. This is before cell phones. That he, he perceived that. He said it will be a technological monster. And um, so Brother Wilson's phrase, it's, he said it's almost as if God's going to find out who can backslide with all of this tsunami that's coming. Well, where that comes into play on the drawing of lines is I do think... God is going to know what everything and everybody's made out of. And pastors have to draw lines, we know that. Mothers and fathers that have any sense draw lines as long and as far as they can in the lives of their children. After a while, it becomes those children's responsibility to draw those lines, to keep lines, et cetera. And And so it is with every child of God. And with technology, it's, Okay, okay, I have to draw this line. I have to draw this line. I have this phone in my pocket and mom and dad's not looking over my shoulder. And so, and God, he wants to know, are you going to draw that line? Are you going to draw that line? The example I think in scripture is uh, we know that when the children of Israel carried away Captive in the first captivity, and um, Daniel was carried away. And then, after the children were renamed, it was Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. And Daniel purposed in his heart, I will not defile myself with the king's meat or the king's wine. And it seems that Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego bought in. They said, Yeah, me too. And so And they were all blessed and they were all honored later. Nebuchadnezzar sets up his idol on the plains of Shinar. And he says, when you hear the sound of the music, corn at the sack, but on and on and on. When it begins to play, everything in this kingdom is going to bow down to my idol. And it did, except for Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego. They did not, and they stood out like sore thumbs. We know the story, the fiery furnace. And before it was over, Nebuchadnezzar is is is, is your God, our God, everybody get up, etc. okay? The age old question is, where was Daniel? And I've read everything. I mean, I actually read one guy said, well, Daniel was on his face bowing. I mean, forgive me, but how do you spell stupid? That's not, no. And so this is kind of a tongue in cheek statement that I use, but I've said it many times. I bring this up, paint the scenario and say, now, do you want to know where Daniel was? I know where Daniel was. I can tell you exactly where Daniel was. And everybody's waiting to hear where Daniel was. My answer is Daniel was wherever God wanted him to be, but he did not want him there that day because he wanted to see if Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, how you boys going to do without your pastor? How are you going to do without Daniel right there? The first stand he took, they bought into it this time. I'm I'm on purpose, leaving you on your own. I will never forget a young man coming to me. I was uh, preaching a conference in Alabama. And this was a signal moment, a young man. I love very, very much, good young man. And he was my cadet for that conference and taking care that I had water to drink, etc. You know, good guy. And we were talking and he said, you know, uh, Brother Booker, he said, I thank God for modern technology. I thank God for internet. I thank God for YouTube. I thank God for Netflix. And I'm looking at it. And, and he said, I, I'm, I'm thinking, where are you coming from, man? And he said, I'm going to tell you why I thank God for him. And what he what he said almost made me cry. He said, your generation, you had to find out where you were with television. You had to take your stands. you had to get a hold of this. He said, he said in Judges three, these were the nations that God left to prove Israel, to see if they would know how to fight. He said, you had to fight it out over television and other things. He said, my generation, all these things I just named, he said, these are the giants that God left in our land. And he said, and I'm learning how to fight and I'm learning how to get the victory. And he said, me and my buddies, we prayed together and we determined this is gonna be our challenge and we're gonna win this. And when he said that, I really did start crying. It was, it was, it was, it was a moment. And so technology, we know it can be an unbelievable blessing. I mean, here we are today and we're using technology. And it will be a blessing, but it's like anything. It's what you do with it. Where will our world be without automobiles? And yet in Nice, France, we saw what a guy could do with a truck just a week ago. And so uh, in the tongue, we can either use them correctly or cut them off, but he said life and death is in the power of the tongue. So it's how we use it, that's all important, and uh, that applies to almost everything in life. What you do with it, and um, so so technology is a challenge. There's there's no question about it, but it can be a challenge for uh, greatness, just like every generation fight fa- faces. It's it's it's. Giants. Uh, in a nutshell, when, when Jehu saw her up in the window with her painted face and tared head, and uh, whether she was flirting or taunting, or I don't know what she was doing, but she was being her wicked self, he said, who's on the Lord's side? Who? The interesting thing is that it was the eunuchs that took her and threw her out the window and um, the Bible doesn't mince words and um, unlike the James Fenimore Cooper books God did not get paid by the word that's the reason so many old books are so big They got paid by the word well God didn't get paid by the word if he puts a word in there there's a reason for it and and so here is this woman Jezebel known for her uh Ludity. Here she is painted up; she's vile. But it was eunuchs that threw her out the window. She, among other things, had no pull on them. You don't move us, lady. You're not. You're you're no more. Forgive this. Alluring to us than a sack of flour, and they threw her out the window. Boom. Well. The question is, can you throw Jezebel out the window? Why? Let's just let's just say it's the sports world. Why are some people struggle so hard to take a stand against improper? Uh, there's nothing wrong with playing games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if it becomes domineering and controlling, and 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 why why does people have such a hard time throwing that out the window? It's because of the draw, okay? Why do they have a problem throwing television out? The draw. Why do they have a problem throwing alcohol out? It's the draw. Why do some people have a problem throwing cigarettes out? It's the draw. Break the draw. Get a hold of God to the point that the draw is broke. You got no problem throwing the cigarettes out, throwing the alcohol out, throwing the undue influence of, of sports world out, Um, uh, of of improper technology. So the question, can you throw Jezebel out the window, um, it just, it just depends on how big a draw Jezebel has, but to those eunuchs, and this may be stretching a verse too far. I, I understand that, but there's at least a little fingerprint there. When Jesus said, and I I know this is a stretch, but he said some people become eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake, okay? Now there's at least a fingerprint there that That, when it comes to so many things that are drawing so many people, no, 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 no. My draw is we look at those things which are above, not on those things which are beneath. That's our main draw. And, then I'll, and I'll close up with this. Just if you wonder if that's a telling point. Anybody wonders. Look at David. When I consider the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun. All these things which thou has ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. In all of David's writings, he says, I will look up. He draws nigh to God, he draws nigh to God, okay? His son Solomon. Now David was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. The adversaries of David are all the way through his entire life, but he looked up. If anybody ever had the silver spoon, it was Solomon. He has no adversaries. After he backslides, God gives him two. One was Jeroboam. And another one was, I think, Hamath, but, if that's not his name, but anyway, he had two when he backslid. David said, I got more than I got hair on my head. He, He made stone, silver as stones. The whole world came to him, talked to him, this and that. But Solomon's outlook was, I sought to search out all things done under the heavens. His eyes were not up, his eyes were down the things which the sons of man shall do. And he became so earthly minded on the dealings of man, the comings and goings, and all things done under the sun. This is why you go to Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun. The conclusions that you get is 36 times vanity of vanities. It's where he had his eyes cast, was here beneath. David had his above. And so he he could go above the fray, most of them, and Solomon were drowned in them. Well, the things of this earth, they want to pull our attention to earthly things, to things here. And, and, and so we, we got to keep our shoelaces tied and, and I don't care if it's politics, if it's American politics, I don't care if it's, if it's sports or whatever. No, we have, we are citizens. Of another country, and and our our focus, our demeanor is is to help not only ourselves and our family, but those here to look up to where our redemption is drawing nigh, and so we have to be immune to so many of the allures down here, and throw them out the window if need be.